1 Kings chapter 12. We're looking through the book of Kings from the middle here, from Solomon onwards to the end when I'm preaching, just looking at some of the stories, some of the histories. This is real history and uh, we're learning from it because we can learn. People of God in this day and age, this covenant can learn from what happens in the old covenant, very much so. God uses it to speak to us. So we're going to look at a story this morning about Jeroboam. And this is Jeroboam, Compromise and Expediency. And uh, that's uh, the title. I don't know if you've got PowerPoints. I'll forget about it in a minute. But Okay, well, we're going to look at compromise and expediency. Now, that word is a bit of a, a word. I'm not being rude. I know many of you are well able to define the word. Oh, yes, of course you are. But on the other hand, I think it's worth just unpacking a word, almost dictionary-like, to remind us what it means and give you a few heads up on what I want to talk about, really. Expediency means that you do something because it's convenient rather than because it is just or right or fair. That would be a sort of dictionary definition. So you you do things that are just convenient and suit you and, and are easier to do than the right thing. Often the end would justify the means if you're being expedient about something. And it's often driven by self-interest or the urgent need of the moment. And we'll see that expediency seems to be one of the words you could use to apply to Jeroboam and why he did what he did. But it is such a tragedy because there's another man who had some wonderful promises of God which he could have seen fulfilled and he didn't. And uh, we'll be looking at his story in a moment. I want it to be a challenge for us individually for us as a church, but also a challenge to us as the church, part of the church in 21st century Britain, the Christian church, people of God today. I think particularly in our part of the world, there's some real issues that this story raises. Now, as we saw last week, Solomon came to the end of his reign, having done well in so many areas, but right from early on had a number of compromises and sins which he never did anything about, didn't address them, and slowly they came to dominate his life. Foreign wives led to foreign gods and to idolatry. His heart wandered far from God, and so God raised up adversaries to challenge him and discipline him, which he didn't respond to particularly, as far as we know. And in the end, God said, instead of being able to fulfill the promises I made to you, Solomon, the kingdom will be torn from your son's hand and split into two. And two tribes will stay with one of your sons, and ten will go with someone else. And God uses these words about the someone else. It's in 1 Kings 11.11, you need to look at it. He will be one of your subordinates. There's a word there just to remember. So Jeroboam was considered a subordinate. Maybe he had an inferiority complex, which he didn't deal with by trusting God. Who knows? But he was designated, he was obviously a lot less than the king and his family. But he was also described in verse 28 of chapter 11 as a young man of good standing. So actually he started well. He was a good guy. He wasn't a villain to start off with. A young man of standing. Now what happened to Jeroboam was actually God's idea. If you want to look at it, it's in uh, chapter 11, but it's going to go up on the screen. I'm just going to give you a couple of the tasters of what God said. A, A prophet met Jeroboam on the way. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem 
And Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. A dramatic gesture. The prophet took off his new cloak, ripped it into twelve pieces, and then gave ten to Jeroboam. And this young guy was standing there holding these ten pieces of material as he was prophesied over. Now, there were more things said, but here's a key one. 1 Kings 11, 37 to 38, as part of that prophecy. However, says the prophet to him, Jeroboam, as for you, this is God speaking to Jeroboam through the prophet, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. This was a magnificent promise. It was amazing for a young man like Jeroboam. God said, you're going to be a king like David. I have plans that you should have an enduring dynasty. You will rule most of Israel. But it was a conditional promise, as most promises are in the Bible. If, yeah, it was, I will make you king over Israel. You will rule over your, all your heart's desires. I'll build you a dis- dynasty as enduring as David's. If you do what I command and walk in my ways, do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes as David my servant did. Now, as we said last week and the week before, David wasn't perfect, but he was a man who was faithful to God and who knew where to go when he blew it. And he did blow it sometimes with sins, but he didn't ever stray from worshipping God and being focused on the living God. And that was very important. And that was the key note that God kept drawing these kings' attention to. Now, Jeroboam was challenged. If you do that, I will bless you and you will have a dynasty like David's. Now let's read in 1 Kings 12 what actually happened after these events took place. Basically, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was very stupid in the way he behaved towards people and God used those circumstances to fulfill that prophetic word and only two tribes stayed with Rehoboam. Ten, the majority, followed Jeroboam as their new king. Now let's hear what Jeroboam did. 1 Kings 12 verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom is now likely to revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah. 
and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the 8th month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Within a short space of time, Jeroboam has his ten twelfths in absolute spiritual chaos. People are no longer worshipping in Jerusalem, in the temple that's been built, the place where God has appointed his worship. They're worshipping at Bethel and Dan. They're worshipping two golden calves, not God at all. All sorts of people are priests. Anyone and anyone in one place, we're told, anyone who wanted to be could be a priest. And they had a whole new set of feast days, not the ones ordained by God in Leviticus, clearly laid out, prescribed by the living God, but ones that he decided would be a good time to have a religious feast. And the king himself was offering sacrifices on the altar, which no king should ever do, and which Saul had done and been severely judged for doing it, offering a sacrifice when he couldn't wait for Samuel to turn up. It was a complete mess that Jeroboam created. How on earth did he do it? Why did he get into such compromise and confusion so quickly? Let's look at a few of his mistakes. We're just going to look at five things that are rather obvious, but we need to learn from them. First, Jeroboam did not trust God. He did not trust God. Now, that's such a fundamental issue. It is the foundational problem most of us have when we compromise and sin. Matthew Henry, an ancient writer 350 years ago, writing on this passage, says, a practical disbelief in God's all-sufficiency is at the bottom of all treacherous departures from him. Just let me read that again. I love the language. A practical disbelief in God's all-sufficiency is at the bottom of all treacherous departures from him. Bottom line is, do you trust God to do it God's way? Can you trust God with your life? I'm afraid Jeroboam does not come out well. God had said all sorts of things I will do for you, but you've got to do it my way. You've got to trust me. God had promised he would establish him as king of Israel, build him a dynasty like David's. Simply, Jeroboam had to obey God and keep to doing things God's way. Believe his word and obey it. Frankly, Jeroboam gave in to fear, not faith. He gave in big time to fear and insecurity. He was eager to make sure he was secure. And God's word did not feel very secure. God's word did not feel a very good way of living. It felt unwise, stupid, vulnerable to Rehoboam. Remember these guys, Rehoboam and Jeroboam were enemies. There had been a virtual conflict, it was a rebellion, that was humanly what happened, and Jeroboam had ten of the tribes. So there was a a bad feeling, it was a virtually uh, war situation uh, between these two halves of Israel. They weren't halves, two parts of Israel. But nevertheless, Jeroboam had to trust God. But to him, letting the people go to Jerusalem, which was in Rehoboam's territory, seemed really stupid and unwise. He was terrified. What's going to happen is people are going to go over to to Rehoboam, they're going to join him again, and they're going to kill me. That's what he says. So he says, if I do what I should do, what the right thing to do is, 
letting people go to Jerusalem to worship God, which is the God-ordained place, the one place God said. There was one way to worship God. Just as there's one way today through Jesus Christ. Different covenant, but the some principles the same. If I do it a different way, if I, sorry, do it that way, I will compromise myself. I, I might well lose my life. And in any case, it was humiliating. Must have been very felt. I've got to ask Rehoboam for right of, of, of safe passage for my people every time they go up to Jerusalem for a feast day. I've got to go cap in hand to Rehoboam and negotiate terms. I don't want to do that. I feel really stupid and, 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 and humiliated by it. What common things we all battle with. Fear, insecurity, pride, all jam, jangling in his head, all clattering in his ear and, and chattering in his ear. And he was no longer really hearing God. He was no longer really trusting the word of God. He's got to do something to make his position secure. He's got to make his own security. Look what he started doing in verse 25. He built fortresses. Even before he did this foolish other stuff, he started building fortresses. Do you know we do that? We may not do it physically, but we get full of fear and insecurity and we build fortresses. Now the fortress we need is God. He is the fortress of our lives. Don't let fear and insecurity and pride drive you into compromise. I want a real answer. I want something that makes sense to me. That's what he was doing. And I can't believe that God's word will just happen. We can so easily walk by logic and not by faith. Or by calculation rather than commitment to God's ways. It's a very easy mistake to make. Let God challenge us about it this morning. But the sad fact is, by ignoring God's ways... The very things he feared happened to him. There is a verse at the end of 1 Kings 13. 1 Kings 13, 34. And I'll read it to you. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and its destruction from the face of the earth. Oh dear. No longer an enduring inheritance. No longer an enduring dynasty. But a downfall and a destruction from the face of the earth. Does God not keep his promises? He does. But these promises were conditional. God said, as you walk with me, as you follow me, I will give you an enduring dynasty. You will know my security. You'll know my blessing. But Jeroboam just couldn't trust God. It just didn't make sense to him. I'm too vulnerable if I do that. So the next point, he relied on his own understanding. Look at verse 26. It says, Jeroboam thought to himself. <laughs> Jeroboam thought to himself. He began to dwell on his fears and his own reasonings. Isn't that easy to do? I can do that. He began to think to himself. The answer isn't just, it's not to not think, you know, to get too drunk to think or something stupid, which people try and do. The answer is to take your thoughts to God. It's to think with God. It's to pray. It says um, in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, that's what, it's not that you don't think, but you need to think in the context of God. You need to think with the Lord. You need to pray. You say, oh Lord, I'm very anxious, but I'm going to bring my request to you with thanksgiving. I'm going to talk this out with you. 
That's all I can say to you. That's what I do in prayer often. I talk it out with God. It's very easy to think to yourself. And you go round and round in fear and uncertainty. And he thought, if they go to Jerusalem, then what will happen? And it gets worse and worse. What will happen is they'll, Rehoboam will get them back on his side. They'll end up killing me. Like, so he got from a bit of worry down to thinking he's going to die. But God said, I've chosen you. God started this. Jeroboam had no hope until God broke in and said, I've chosen you to rule most of Israel. I'm going to leave a little bit with Solomon's son just because of my word to Solomon, to David. But you could be the new David. You could be the new David if you will walk with me. That's what my heart is for you, to be the new David. And he just didn't think that at all. He got wrapped up in his anxieties and his fears. I can't see how this is going to work. If they go there, I'm dead meat. That's how he was thinking. Jeroboam, you can't see how it will work, but God's promised to make it work. Don't compromise on God. If you're going to, don't, you know, don't, that's so easy to do. That we, it's the God bit we let go. It's the God bit we crumble. It's the God bit we compromise. That's what he did. He said, I can't go to Jerusalem. I can't do God's thing, God's way. That doesn't make sense. I'm too frightened, so I'll stay with my own plans. I think it's a very familiar thing that we all do. But Proverbs 3 gives us a wonderful signpost for life. Proverbs 3, verses 3 to 5, these are powerful truths that we all should live by. I was given these by my parents when they gave me a Bible when I was a young man, and I often come back to them because they are signposts for life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. What a magnificent bit of advice. Just that last sentence. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Jeroboam's problem. Fear the Lord and shun evil. God is the one I fear. First and foremost, get your order of fear right. (laughs) Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. This is the healthy way to live. These are magnificent verses. And if you get nothing else but this from this morning, get these verses in your heart and spirit. They are a way to live successfully in life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Well, that's not what Jeroboam did. The third fault I find with Jeroboam, a mistake he made, is he sought the wrong advice. It says here, verse 28, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. But you think, well, surely it's sensible to seek advice, isn't it? Well, we need to know a little more, and some translations help us, some translations of the Bible. They add the phrase, he sought advice from his own counsellors. And probably that's correct. Basically, he got his own counsellors around him, and kings had this sort of thing and still do have. And he got his own counsellors around, and he asked them for advice. Now, actually, that isn't always the wisest thing. These are you people in your pay. They're people who want to please you. They're your friends. They're your people you've chosen to be in your circle. Now, we're not kings, but we can do the same. We can seek advice from those who are on the same wavelength, who, who we know are going to be friendly towards us, are going to give us the right answers that we want, say the sort of things we want. It's very easy to do. 
I tell you who Jeroboam could have sought advice from. He'd have been a good suggestion. Why didn't he find the prophet Ahijah who'd given the prophecy in the first place? He was still alive. He features later in the story. We're not going to have time to read it. Ahijah turns up again. He should have gone to Ahijah. Now, he'd have got straight advice from Ahijah. Don't you remember what I said to you? If you will walk in my way, says the Lord to you, and I bet the prophet would have had his old, new old robe on, or whatever he had, because <laughs> he lost his new one, ripped it all up, and he'd have looked him in the eye and he said, don't you remember? Don't you remember what I said to you? God's got plans to bless you, but you must do it God's way. Now, that would have been good advice to see. But he didn't do that. He sought it with his own counsellors. And actually, what was he asking advice about? I mean, it's, no, it's a no-brainer. All of Israel, all of God's people have got to go to Jerusalem to worship. God has decreed it in the temple. There's only one place to go. So what exactly was he asking? It was this sort of question. How can we get round this one? That's the advice he was asking. It's not, should I go? Not as straightforward, I'm sure, as just, is it right or wrong before God to go to Jerusalem? It's like we can't possibly go to Jerusalem, so how can we get round this? Now, that's the sort of advice we can ask. A bit phony, really. You know, like, how do I, I, I mean, I can't really do this. You know, we, we, we can't get married for two years, but we want to sleep together and have sex. So how can we do it and sort of it's okay? Or, or you know, like, you know, I, 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 I sort of want to be a Christian. I sort of don't want to tell my family. I sort of don't want to get baptized. I sort of don't want to look too weird. So can I sort of get round it all? <laughs> and I can give you a thousand examples, many from my own life. It's so easy to do, isn't it? How can I honor God with my money but not actually give properly? <laughs> you know, how can I get round this in some way that is satisfactory in some sort of twisted political political spin sort of way, because that's what we're talking about. There's advice and advice. If you're going to people who who just going to tell you what you want to hear, that's not really seeking proper advice. You need to go to people who are spiritually mature, maybe leaders in the church, not that it always has to be that at all, but people who maybe you know are going to tell me what I don't know. No, you can't do that. God's very clear. You've got to find another way of coping with that problem. I've been told I've got to lie at at work. What should I do? Well, let's find a way by which you don't lie and stand for Jesus and we'll support you if that really goes belly up. (laughs) You think, oh, that's not the advice I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear, yes, you can sort of do it and then ask forgiveness afterwards. Or or, or use some funny phrase that will just cover it. No, no, no. It's not how it works. What about, you know, can't I just, no, 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 no. Is it all right just to sort of look at dirty stuff and, you know, provided I don't do that. No, let's get it clear. Get the right advice. Get good, godly advice. Look at what this advice came up with. It wasn't very clever, really. Verses 28 to 30. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves, blah, 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 set one up in Bethel and the other in Dan, and the thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship. What is all this? What is all this? Golden calves, but Dan and Bethel, it's, it's fascinating in a strange sort of way. Why? I, as I was reading and preparing this, it really struck me, this is exactly the sort of religion a committee would come up with. A committee of advisors who've got no relation to God's word. They weren't basing it on God's word at all. But there were reasons why they did this. Bethel had links to Abraham and Jacob. It was where Abraham and Jacob worshipped before ever Moses and the law came along. 
So I suppose they argued, all our ancestors worshipped at Bethel. We can't go wrong worshipping at Bethel. Dan had, was, had been in a centre of alternative worship, not necessarily godly, but alternative worship since the day of Judges, when a grandson of Moses had set up worship at Dan. Well, actually then, you know, if Moses' grandson used to worship at Dan, I don't think it's too bad for us to worship there. What about the golden calves? That seems like really stupid. I don't know what their arguments were, but there were precedents. Aaron had got a golden calf. Now, you think, yeah, but didn't that story go wrong? Sometimes people just don't notice that, do they? Aaron, the first high priest, before we had all this temple stuff, which David and so he used a golden calf. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. And actually, all the nations around, by the way, it's a bit of background knowledge for you, all the nations around tended to use golden calves a lot in worship. And the normal thing, I find this sort of thing fascinating. I trust I won't bore you for the next two minutes. The normal thing was that they had a golden calf and an idol on it. Okay? So you had a golden calf with a great fat on the top of it like that, or something like that. And you had your idol on the golden calf, show that your God was strong and, you know, virile, and this bull calf. Now, what these people did, and what Israel did, is is just have the calf. Nothing on the calf, just the calf. You know, bull calf. Why was that? They were showing Yahweh, you can't make an idol of Yahweh, Yahweh's invisible. Big deal. So you've got a calf with nothing on it. Yeah, because our God's invisible. See, it's subtle. Subtle. Yeah, what happened is people, people ended up worshipping the jolly cow. That's what happened. They worshipped the cow. Everybody else at least got something sitting on the cow. You've got nothing on the jolly cow, and so we worship the cow. So, but isn't that what happens with Christianity sometimes? You're so, so clever. We're too clever for our own good. But that is literally, according to historians, and probably accurately, what was going on. We will have a bull calf with nothing on it. Yahweh is invisible. And people are now bowing down to the calf. Oh, mighty calf. So, actually, it was nonsense. But it had a root in their history. It was a sort of alternative approach. They were picking up a different tradition in Israel's history. They were linking with an earlier past when things were broader and more inclusive than since Moses and the law and the temple and the tabernacle and the temple and all the things that clearly had been laid out since then. This was diversity, not apostasy. It was history, not novelty. No, it wasn't. It was apostasy and it was novelty. But you know, it happens in our own circles all sorts of ideas come in that undermine the one way of Jesus Christ. The penal substitution of Jesus' death on the cross, bearing our sins in his own body on the cross. The accuracy and trust we should put in the Bible, God's word. The Holy Spirit and his gifts and empowering. That the church is the body of Christ. It's people, not buildings. And it's people in relationship to God or Jesus and to each other. All sorts of clear new covenant principles that are in the New Testament can be done away with and couched in such fine terms, such well-argued things. Well, let's go, with a, let's go back to our Celtic roots. I mean, I'm Celtic, I'm half Irish, I'm not anti-Celts, so okay. You know, I'm not, what are we doing? I mean, I don't mind nice music, I quite like Celtic music, actually, as it happens. But, you know, what are we quite doing? Are we worshipping Jesus? Perhaps we are. 
But let's go back. Let's go do this. Let's see what they used to do in the Middle Ages. Oh, let's see what the Roman Catholic Church used to do a thousand years ago. Let's see what the Bible says, shall we? Let's see what Jesus says. And let's us be careful too, because you can always build clutter around yourself. It's useful, but in the end, you've got to keep your eye on the main thing. They lost it completely. They went right back into their history and lost the whole thing. And he justified himself. Next point. Having done all that, he justified himself. You can read it in the verse we've just read. It's 1 Kings 12, 28. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves and he said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Having made a basic error, and this is the basic error, it's not practical to obey God in these circumstances. That is an error we can make. It is not practical to obey God in these circumstances. Having made that basic error, he then put a spin on it. He made it sort of seem very convenient, very uh, caring for his people. It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. It's a long way and it'll cost you a lot of money and it's quite hazardous, dangerous. Nasty Rehoboam has got some nasty soldiers with pointy swords. No, no, we actually, I'm I'm really concerned for you guys and I'm making it easier. This is user-friendly. This is much more accessible. It's much more in harmony with where we're at at this time. And it won't be so awkward or embarrassing or difficult for you going through the enemy territory, wondering what's going to happen, trying to keep your eye on God's temple. No, no, we don't need to worry about all that. We can dial it all down and make it much easier. Now, that's a common justification for compromise. Convenience. It's uh, easier, more comfortable, more contemporary. It's in harmony with modern culture or our own personal situation. My friends and my family will understand that. In a way they won't if I do it God's way. It's a very easy argument to make. And it, it's, it's, root, it's an easy argument, but the root really wasn't that. The root was fear, as we saw earlier. It was a wrong argument in lots of ways. It wasn't even good sense. It says in verse 30, they went even as far as Dan. If you get a map out, sometimes there is a use for these maps in the back of your Bible. I was delighted to have a use for one this week. I got into the maps for a little minute. You look at Dan, it's miles away. And and many commentators say that most of the people Jeroboam ruled had to travel twice as far to go to Dan as they would have done Jerusalem. So that's just not rubbish. And isn't that often true, world's ways? You know, it's much freer and easier if we have... Let's get rid of modern... Let's get rid of of sexual morality. That's not made life easier, has it? Look at the complexity. Look at the troubled lives we have. Look at the dysfunctional families. Look at all the hurt people and all the aborted babies. Just look at the whole thing. Pornography. Where do you stop? You think, that's easier, is it? I think it's easier to do it. It's God's way. And it was like that, you know, that that in the end, this wasn't even easier. They were dragging right up to Dan, twice as far. But he, of course, was driven by fear, Jeroboam. He he didn't really have the people's concern at hand, at heart. He was was just driven by his own fear. But we can be quite self-deluding when it comes to sin and compromise. It can be so easy. I mean, we're all prone to it, even in quite minor ways. It can seem so much effort to read the Bible, can't it? (gasps) But when you have to study to improve at work, you get on with it. Or when you want to really learn how to use your new computer, you get out that book and you read for hours working out how to do it. Why, you know, it's it's a bit of effort, but you do it because it's God's word. 
Of course it is. Well, I can't read very well. Well, you seem to be able to read, you know, other things, magazines and goodness knows what. Yeah, come on. We're fooling ourselves. It's so much effort to pray. It's so much effort. Yes, but it's, it's a greater effort when you don't do it God's way. In the end, it's a worse journey. And uh, we can take it further. You know, it's effort to get involved in church, come to community group, whatever. But actually, the alternative is to drift back and to lose the pressure of, of healthy pressure of drawing together, going on in God. It's always amazing how much effort we can put into something like, I don't know, as I said, our career or our physical fitness or some hobby or re, refurbishing our home. We need to put as much effort into God's things. Anyway, he ju- it's easy to justify yourself. That's the point. Say, well, I have to do this, but I don't need you know, well, Whatever. But that's what Jeroboam did. He justified it, and it was really fooling himself and the people. Final point, he allowed one thing to lead to another. Now, we saw this with Solomon. And it is a classic thing we all have to watch. A knowing disobedience, especially, as we said last week, one you know about. It's worse than one you don't notice. A knowing disobedience deliberately embraced will inevitably open the door for other things. When you know you're doing the wrong thing, you still press through, there's something that opens. And uh, it happened here. It was an avalanche, really. The basic error of not wanting to go to Jerusalem led to many others. God had decreed the personnel, the priests. He decreed the periods when they were to worship and the place where they were to worship. One place. But Jeroboam drove a coach and horses through the whole thing. I mean, it's actually funny if it wasn't tragic. He appointed priests from all sorts of people. Chapter 13, verse 33, it says this, anyone who wanted to became a priest. Would you like to be a priest? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind that. Okay, you can be a priest. Anyone who wanted to be a priest. Not the Levite. God has said it's got to be the Levites between the age of 30 and 50. They've got to be physically perfect. There was a whole reason for that. Don't go there today, but there was a reason. God had clearly laid out who could be the priests in the Old Covenant. And he said anybody. Absolutely anybody. He instituted his own festivals. It says in verse 33, a month of his own choosing. I I mean, this is ridiculous if you understand the Old Testament. God had very clearly laid out the feast days. They are clearly prescribed. And he just chose his own ones that suited him. And then, of course, we've seen Bethel and Dan were chosen, nothing to do with what God had said about Jerusalem. And he sacrificed to the calves that he had made. It's tragic. But listen to this. It's very important. Religion for Jeroboam wasn't a given. It was something pliable, something you could shape how you preferred. That is very contemporary. That is very 21st century. That is very much in our churches and in our thinking today. It's a battle we have that actually we don't base things on revelation from God. We base things on a lot of our preferences, our heart preferences, what suits us. It's almost the epitome of postmodern view of spirituality. And of modern views of a sort of uh, subjective religious attitude. It's very important that we understand. You, you cannot pick and mix. You shouldn't. But yet, many people do. What's most convenient? What feels good? What is politically correct? These things often play a big part, even in Christian circles, in our decision of what we do. We are wedded to subjectivism in our day and age. 
But actually, faith and worship in the one true God, and I say that carefully, there is one true God, because pluralism is one of these things, and it needs to be shut down. There's one true God. There is one way to the one true God, which is through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. Hallelujah. And these things, our faith and our worship, rest on divine revelation, which God has given us. Now, our day and age is very different from Jeroboam's, but we cannot play fast and loose like he did. Just pick and mix. Oh, well, I have a festival moment. Anybody can be a priest. Let's go to Bethel and Dan. That's links to our history. What's God saying? We must do it God's way. The New Testament's clear. Our faith is all about Jesus Christ. Christians are people who are disciples of Jesus. That's the only sort of Christians that exist. You have to be committed to Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Nothing else can legitimately be called a Christian. I'm not talking about the church you go to. I'm talking about a fundamental truth. That's all Christianity ever is. It is people who are disciples of Jesus Christ, who is their Lord and Saviour, who they believe has died for them. Hallelujah. Anybody can be a Christian. But being a Christian is putting faith in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes into you. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is your Lord and Saviour. And you believe he died for you. Your sins are born away by him. You are now clean and righteous in him, not because of you. And because of Jesus, you are accepted by God and he is your father, Abba Father. It's wonderful and it's true. Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're people who are filled with the Spirit. There is a supernatural dimension to Christianity. And it's all to do with the Spirit of God coming into you and changing you. True worship in the new covenant is in spirit and in truth. And that's might be in a thousand different settings. Open air, buildings, different shaped buildings. But in the end, it's in spirit and in truth or it's not worship. If it's not in spirit and in truth, it's not worship. So special places, special buildings, special people with special clothes, not relevant. Could help. You could worship in some of those settings. It's fine. But they aren't the factors. We're in the new covenant. And those things are nothing to do with it. Indeed, they can be distractions, real distractions. The temple is now living people in relationship with Jesus and with each other. It is not a building anywhere in the world. A building is not a religious place. The law of the land calls them that. We get them registered for weddings. But we have to fight in our mind. It's not about a building. It's me in relationship with Jesus and with one another. Buildings have got great use, but they're not holy places in our day and age. And yet multitudes of Christians battle with this. What about leadership? So it's very vague in the New Testament, is it? It's not as prescribed in detail as the Old Testament, you know, the age and the the tribe people came from. And it's not priesthood anyway, because all believers are priests. They intercede with God. They're all priesthood of all believers through Jesus Christ. But New Testament leadership, there is some pretty clear instructions. I think you can find them without too much trouble as you read through the New Testament. Leaders are God-ordained. God chooses and calls. That is recognised by the work of the Spirit in a body of believers and through the gifted people who are already in place. Leaders will be mature, Spirit-filled men. I'm talking about local church leaders. Mature, Spirit-filled men who have a clear grasp of the faith 
once delivered to the saints and are of good moral character, hear this, by biblical standards. If we just took notice of that, what a lot of heartache we would save ourselves in churches worldwide. The Bible is very clear that a leader must be of an exemplary Christian character in harmony with biblical standards. I'm challenged by that myself constantly. But it's there. Now, if we apply that, we will resolve 80-90% of the leadership difficulties that the church has. Well, can we have gay vicars? Of course you can't. (laughs) I mean, I'm not even knocking... You know, I'm just talking about it's, it's Christian morality. It's Christian sexual morality. You know, it's a husband and one wife. and probably, you know, Let's just look at the Bible and see what it says. I mean, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, for example, just that throwaway phrase didn't mean that a single person can't be a leader. But then sexual morality has got to be biblical in its uh, outworking. And the challenge is, is there. But we have changed it, like Jeroboam did, to anyone who wants to become a priest can be consecrated. Anyone can be a leader. They want to be. They can be a leader. That's not biblical. That's not New Testament. (laughs) It's not anyone who wants to be. Oh, I I mean, it can happen in all sorts of ways. I'm called to be. Well, yeah, great. We'll have to see if that call's confirmed by lots of things that aren't to do with you. So, you know, and there's character as well. So it's not anyone who wants to be. (laughs) And, and, And Jeroboam did that, and people still do it today. And even in our own setting, as I was meditating on this, not about this point, but just the challenge. Do we do things in our own way rather than biblical? I think we can. I think we have to be very sensitive. And I'm I'm asking God to help me to be so. I don't want to poke finger at other people. God, what do you say? I mean, what do you say about church? I I mustn't just make up my own ideas. Now, obviously, there's interpretation of Scripture. I understand that. I live with that all my life. But, But actually... Let's be clear, God's saying, this is how I do it, and I don't actually like you messing about with it. And it's sobering when you see that writ large as you do in Jeroboam's story. Let's just summarize and come to end. Jeroboam's story challenges us then. Do we trust God and obey his word, or do we do things that are more expedient and comfortable and convenient and reasonable? Do we balk at the cost of doing it God's way? Are we too ruled by fear rather than by fear of God? Is there too much thinking to ourselves? I think that can be a danger for me. I said it earlier. But let's get our focus on God. Let's, as I read earlier, and I'll read it again, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's Philippians 4, 6 and 7. And I've written it on a card. You write it on a card if you want to. And when you're really anxious, and I certainly go through periods of that frequently, you need to get your card out and remind yourself, don't be anxious. What do you do instead? Pray. What do you do? Think with God. What do you do instead? By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Peace of God, guard your heart. There are answers. Are we wise in seeking advice? If we are seeking advice, it's not wrong to, let's make sure we go where we trust that it will be godly advice, not just what we want to hear. And what about the church itself? We make sure we don't get our advice from the world. It's the word and the spirit that are the guidelines for church life. Do we justify our compromises? Having made them, do we justify them on the grounds of, say, convenience? God help us not to rationalise and excuse sin. 
You know, I, I, I felt, when I, I try to think of examples, I have been all week, and I, I don't want to make too much of it, but I think we need to be careful about the poor and needy. It's very easy to justify inconvenience, spoils the thing, bit difficult, hard work, don't quite know what to do, bit complicated, but the gospel is for the poor. And you just have to find a way around those things. And, and, you know, if it's untidy, you have to live with that because we cannot compromise some... I mean, there's many more. I, I, I'm just before God about it myself. Many more things that you can do and you can say, ooh, that's subtle, but I'm beginning to justify and that's more convenient. And, and that actually, But actually, what does the Bible say? What's the heart of Jesus? And lots of things. We do have tongues. We do pray for the sick. I hear, oh, it's not very convenient to have someone shouting out in tongues in worship. No, it's a bit embarrassing, actually. Thank you for doing it, though. It was Tom, wasn't it? You know, I mean, let's keep charismatic. So easy. You think, oh, it's a bit uncomfortable. Oh, 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 let's it'd be much more understandable for everybody. Actually, actually, there's some really good understandable stuff. You could write it all out, you know, a hymn, a prayer. Write the prayer out, that'd be even more understandable, wouldn't it? I'm, I'm being slightly sarcastic. I'm not knocking anything. What I'm saying is, what road do we want? If we're charismatic, we're open, aren't we? And we have to stay in all the uncomfortableness. You know, pray for the sick. They don't always get healed. We're still going to pray for them. We're still going to pray. We pray and weep with dear Ray. We're delighted that the medicine, uh, the, the medics think that their medicine's doing so well. We know the med- medicine's good, but we know the prayer's good. We just live with that. We'd love to see an instant miracle, but we're seeing a slow miracle in his life. Hallelujah. We just live with it. You know, we've got to press through. Don't make it too comfortable and convenient. There's many things that challenge us. Am I too tolerant, last question out of Jeroboam, as I've been saying, of what I consider small sins? Do I just tolerate the small thing? But one leads to another, and you end up literally 100 miles from where you should be. Dan is probably about 100 miles from Jerusalem. You end up a, a, a miles from where you should be, and you just need, need to be careful. So what's the answer as we finish? We've got five or ten minutes. I'd like to give ten minutes to worship and breaking bread. I'm sorry about time. I know I'm a bit long on these talks. I'm also having lots of notices to handle every week, but praise God. Let's have the musicians up because I want to bring, get our focus in the last 10 minutes back on Jesus. Can you come up, please? Thank you. I want to read a scripture before they play anything, but just let's get you up for the moment. I'd like us to have 10 minutes of clarity before we even go for our children or anything. Because what is the answer for this? Well, the answer to all these challenges... It's not to adopt rules and laws and regulations. It's not to get legalistic. It's not to give up in despair, say, well, I'm just weak. Here's the answer. Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God knows it is easy to grow weary and lose heart. It wouldn't be in the Bible if it was. It's not the only place it's in the New Testament. It's easy to the pressure to compromise, the pressure to sin does build up on all of us. But what is the answer? Well, in our day and age, there is one place. It's not Jerusalem, it's Jesus. There's one person, there's one place we fix our eyes. There's one place we go. It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? Fix our, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith. It is all about him. We're going to worship him for a few minutes. We're going to break bread. And they're going to use that as our means of settling our spirits. I hope you are challenged by some of what I've said. I want to challenge you. I want to be challenged myself. But I don't want to leave you sort of just losing heart. (laughs) What you need to do is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Lord, I mustn't get away from you. All the arguments and the clever sophistry that I might end up doing this or doing that. Lord, it is all about you. And I just want us to do that for 10 minutes as we finish. It's all about Jesus. Let's stand together.